All right, we're going to cover all of chapter 6 of Acts, and I'm going to read the first um, six verses. And this sermon today records the first conflict within the body of Christ. It records the first conflict within the body of Christ, and it also records the third and what will turn out to be a deadly confrontation with the civil and religious authorities. So why don't we stand for the reading of God's word? I'll just read the first six verses. It's, Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. May God bless the reading of his word. The title of my sermon this morning is The First Conflict and the Third Confrontation. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, we rejoice in you and thank you that we have this time to gather as a congregation to worship you and to learn of your word. Learn from your scriptures, O God. And Lord, I just ask and pray that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would use it for good in the heart and mind of each one gathered, that we would understand your ways better, that it would build each one up in the faith, and that you might be glorified through our lives and through our congregation. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So verses 1 through 6 of chapter 6 records the first known conflict between believers within the body of Christ. And notice it did not take long from the birth of the church to this first conflict taking place. didn't take long at all. This is very early on. might be 33. Christ has just died. might be the latest we know is 37 A.D. This is boom. And that didn't mean that this is you know, there weren't other conflicts. This is the first recorded conflict, and it came early on, early on. Many despise Christianity because of conflict found within the body of Christ. But the truth is, where there are humans, there will be conflict, even in the midst of Christianity. I, too, once hated conflict within the body, I found it stressful, a burden, a distraction from serving Christ in the earth. But as the years went on, I learned that it is not a distraction from Christianity, but rather conflict is a part of Christianity. Once you come to realize that, that conflict is a part of Christianity, conflict is no longer usually as stressful or burdensome as it once was. Also, growing in the faith and growing older has taught me we all have weaknesses, we all have shortcomings, we all suck in some way. None of us are perfect. 
So the tendency amongst Christians is to avoid conflict. It's a tendency amongst human beings. And yet it's part of our Christian life. And so you should embrace it. Not view it as a distraction, some burden other than Christianity. It's part of Christianity. If you're going to follow the Lord, live faithful and true to Him and walk with Him, it will happen. You will experience it. You will watch it. So the important thing to do is to act properly in the midst of it. Just starting from this perspective, which is a biblical perspective, as Paul said in Romans 12, that we should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, or as he said in Galatians 6, that we should bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Just starting from this perspective changed my approach to conflicts or problems or awful situations within the body of Christ. Often people will malign and attack others when the conflict arises rather than approach it with humility and try to bring reconciliation and establish the facts and truth. When I was younger, I regularly participated in such attacks as I was still insecure in myself and yet full of myself and also had youthful hubris where in some situations I thought I was defending the faith. I have watched younger people rip each other apart in the body of Christ. And here we have the first recorded conflict. So we learn here, conflict is a part of Christian living. Welcome to Christianity 101. This conflict, when we read of it in this passage, may seem small to us, but I have learned even the smallest of conflicts can turn into great conflagrations. And as often the case, there is usually some history that has happened between the opposing parties prior to the outbreak of open conflict, things which some have harbored, sometimes true, sometimes falsely perceived to be true, which makes the conflict a far bigger matter than deserved. Sometimes it is jealousy or simple bad behavior as none becomes instantly perfect upon professing Christ. We carry over bad behavior from our past, and jealousy, often combined with pride, brings for an awful mixture for the conflagration of conflict. An awful mixture. That's why people have to clothe themselves in humility and communicate and not think of themselves more highly than they ought to think. This situation, we know historically that there was previous things that made the two groups here easy to create a conflict. The Hellenists and the Hebrews had this ongoing conflict during their days in Judaism before they became Christians. Because remember, this is Luke's first panel here in Acts that we're in, which records the spread of Christianity among the Jews and those converts to Judaism. This past History was surely a spark for the current open conflict between the Hebrews and the Hellenists. The Hellenist Jews had felt that the Hebrew Jews had always considered them second class. 
Whether true or not, that was their perception. Hence this conflict. The Hellenists felt their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And unfortunately, when there is conflict or a disturbing situation that results in conflict, accompanying vices come along with it. Gossip, tail-bearing, backbiting. The widows felt neglected. They no doubt began spinning their web of discontent, and soon the males were drawn into the conflict. And I have seen this many times (laughs) in my 58 years. When I was reading this portion, and the scholars I was reading about it, I was reminded of the um, time me and Jason were up at uh, Chuck E. Cheese, (laughs) a place of renown for pizza and games. We were there, and lo and behold, two women got into a conflict. And I'm literally sitting 30 feet away watching this thing unfold, and they went back and forth, and... Next thing you knew, in came the men. So this one dude's against two other dudes, and the two dudes jump on the one dude, and there's this fist fight, knockdown, drag out thing. Boing, 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 boing. I spring from my table. I literally pole vaulted over the little barrier they have at, whatever you call it, Chuck E. Cheese, and I landed up on top of the table because they had the guy pinned and just pummeling him. And I jumped up on top of the table, and they all backed off. They both backed off immediately. And Jason was the next one who got there. And I just yelled something. I don't even remember what I yelled, just to like act like a barking dog or something, you know? <laughs> These are all young men with big guns. <laughs> you know, big guns. What was I going to do? Roll over them? <laughs> you know, it's like, but it worked. And the truth of the matter is, this place is full of people, and nobody else did anything. Nothing. They would have let two guys beat up one guy right in the midst of it. And the only reason they ended up in this fight was this conflict going on with their women folk. So these widows felt neglected. They no doubt began spinning their web of discontent, and soon the males were drawn into the conflict. And now the apostles are drawn into it. So what do they do? Well, verse 2 says, Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. They convene the multitude, and in this situation, have them select seven men from among themselves to correct this injustice and to make sure the food is distributed properly. And from this, a whole new office formed within the church called deacons. One thing I've learned about conflict... As awful as it is when you're in the midst of it, in the end, I always see God use it for good in people's lives. So they convene everybody together. They find seven guys who will correct this injustice and distribute the food properly. And from this, a whole new office is formed, namely deacons. 
and this is an office of service, of helps, to get things which are important to the governance of a congregation done without unduly taking away from the duties of the other offices. You can just imagine how much the apostles had to do with governing the congregation. And they did not want yet another duty, namely serving tables. The body of Christ had grown, had to grow and mature, and this was part of the process. Others would have to come into positions of leadership and duty. I do want to note that the word deacon is not used in this passage. But clearly this developed into an office as the early church continued to grow. Diakonos, the word for deacon, is not used, but the cognate noun diakonia is used in verse 1, which we translate in our English as distribution. And the verb diakoneo is used in verse 2, which we translate in our English serve, serve tables. So verse 3 says, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, who we may appoint over this business. So they call for seven men to be appointed, and they will give themselves more fully to prayer and ministry of the word. That's what the apostles say in verse 4. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And I can assure you that is not all they did. But things had simply reached a point with all the tasks in governing such a large group that was impinging upon their ability to give themselves properly to these things, to prayer and the ministry of the word. So they had to delegate to others duties within the congregation so that they could continue in prayer and in the ministry of the word. Verses 5 and 6 says, And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Notice that the first two they picked turn out to be great preachers and teachers of the Lord, Philip and Stephen whom Luke will go on to write about more fully in the next couple of chapters. They were deacons, and yet they were great preachers and teachers of the word of God. Verse 7 says, Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. This is a repetitive theme in the early parts of Acts, that the church is growing. It's growing. It's abounding. If you're taking notes, you can mark down Acts 2, 42 through 47. Acts 2, 42 through 47. Acts 4, 32 through 35. 4, 32 through 35. And 5, 12 through 16. Chapter 5, 12 through 16. And now here, this is a repetitive theme that Luke keeps bringing up. The church is growing. And notice Luke mentions here that a great many priests also became Christians. How many is many? We are not sure. You could say many, and it'd still be few to the total number if you have low expectations. Have you ever done that? I have. I tell people, 
There are many pastors who have preached on the doctrine of the lesser magistrates since the book was published. Okay? Now, if you're going by all the pastors that exist in America, no, it probably wouldn't be many. But if you're starting with Matt Chuella's low expectations of ministers, it's many. Because there's a lot of them. So to the whole number, it may not be many, but it's many in the sense that it's happening. So we know historically at that time there were 8,000 ordinary priests and another 10,000 Levites divided into a 24-week course working in the temple, making sure all the duties were done there and the sacrifices and on down the line. So you're talking about 18,000 people. So we don't know if many was a 100 or if many was a 1,000 or if many was 17,000. Understand? We don't know. But Luke records the fact that many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now verses 8 through 15 lay the groundwork for Stephen's trial and defense in chapter 7. Beginning in this verse, verse 8, is the start of Luke's second panel in this book. The first panel now being complete, considered the history of the Jewish believers, this panel covers up to Acts chapter 9, verse 31, and it covers the beginning of the advance of the gospel beyond its strictly Jewish confines. So it says here in verse 8, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. See, conflict is a part of the Christian life. Conflict is a part of the Christian life. Happens within, happens without. Understand that. There is no such thing as a conflict-free Christianity. I know all of American Christianity is trying to create that for themselves. But it just doesn't happen. And that's why you have to learn how to behave like a Christian man and woman in the midst of the conflict. Mature in that way. Verse 10 says, And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which Stephen spoke. Always remember this. When you are attacked for your beliefs, it's an opportunity to declare truth. Always remember that. I used to always get bothered because I get attacked all the time. You know, you speak out against the killing of the preborn or whatever, you get attacked. And I didn't like that. And then I realized, when you are attacked for your beliefs, it's an opportunity to declare truth. So you can either get all bent down, beaten down from the attacks, and even if it's Christian people attacking you on some point of doctrine or Christian living, even if that is what is happening to you, when you are attacked for your beliefs, it's an opportunity to declare truth. You can either get beaten down and say, ah, they all suck, I'm leaving. Or you can say, well, I'm going to be faithful to him, I'm going to love my neighbor, I'm going to say what needs to be said. And may God use it for good. And that's a goodness. That's a goodness. 
They were unable to repudiate Stephen through debate, so they decided to connive. That's a great word, connive. You should look it up sometime. Plumb the depths of what all you're conveying to someone when you use the word you're conniving. Doesn't sound like a really bad thing, connive, but it is. It's a really bad thing. So just look it up. So they decide to connive, and verse 11 says, Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So they made false charges against Stephen. And then look at verse 12. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. In other words, they created a hysteria wherein they could seize Stephen. Men love to create hysteria in people. Demagogues love it. People with an agenda love it. They love to stir up hysteria, fear, intimidation, so people's minds begin to travel in odd places. It's disturbing to watch that. And I've seen it all too many times through my Christian life. Some people are very good at creating hysteria and getting others to mistreat those they despise. They will lie, bear false witness, malign. That is one of their best tools. Malign. Manipulate others, circumstances and relationships. Such actions are evil and are unbecoming of Christian people. So this is what they decided to do to Stephen. So number one, they secretly persuaded men to lie. Number two, they stirred up the people, the elders and the teachers of the law. Three, they seized Stephen. And four, they produced false witnesses for a trial. Look at verse 13. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. And notice that in verse 14, they take a breath from their ad hominem attacks and actually declare a thing that is that he said. He said they said, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Notice that they didn't just make up a bold-faced lie. Remember I said maligning is one of the favorite tools of people with an agenda who want to destroy relationships, cause division, or kill a guy named Stephen. They didn't just make up a bold-faced lie. They took a little truth and twisted it for their own advantage. They maligned the truth for their own ends, and this is how it is often done when Machiavellian types want to hurt someone they despise. They're manipulators. Yes, Jesus said he would destroy the temple. That was true. But he was speaking about his body, not the temple. And yes, the customs were going to change. That was true. All the ceremonial laws were coming to an end, but not to destroy Judaism per se, but because the Messiah had come and they were therefore fulfilled in Christ. So this is how it often works. You take a little bit of truth and you twist it 
and you create a hysteria. And that's what you have here. And it's growing. And it's massive. And they want to get their pound of flesh. They want one of these men named Christians dead. It's interesting that the Jews refused to believe this, that their Old Testament customs were coming to an end, but they did. In 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, and all that ceremonial stuff was over with, I think they finally figured it out then. Again, what this council feared, because again, this is the third confrontation, and every one of the confrontations ends up before who? The Sanhedrin, which consisted of 70 of the most powerful people in Judea and the high priest. What this council feared, what the Sanhedrin feared, was the end of the status quo. That their power and wealth, their cushy arrangement with the Romans might come to an end. That was what was motivating them. No desire for truth or honesty. To understand what is going on or the facts. Their only desire is to maintain the status quo for themselves. In verse 15, it says, And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him, talking about Stephen, saw his face as the face of an angel. In Judaism, very devout men were often spoke of as resembling angels. Here it connotes that he possessed a genuine spiritual winsomeness, declaring bold truth, yet not unduly harsh. The story of Stephen in Acts is for me like reading about the life of some Christians who have gone before us that bring great inspiration in my heart and a great desire to serve Christ in the earth, and it is important that we all do this. That's what the story of Stephen is like to me. It's one of those stories where you see a man who's all on fire for Jesus, and it makes you want that. And it's important that we read about those who've gone before us who were on fire for Jesus. And that doesn't mean they were on fire all the time. Okay? You read their writings, none of them were on fire all the time. You read about their, none of them were on fire all the time. John Knox has a famous, famous quote that I used last week here. Himself. Talking about if he, if he lights me on fire again, great. If not, fine, I'll just hold the ground he's brought me to. Nobody's on fire all the time. We're not built as human beings to sustain that frenzy. You know, this false revivalism that some ascribe to. It's important that we read about those who went before us. We need to be inspired by those who went before us. We need to learn from those who went before us. I read what they did, and it makes me want to be faithful to Christ with the days I have on the earth. Here are some books you can read that will do that for you. I'm just going to go through it quick. You have to get the thing and listen to it when I put it online or whatever. You want to get them all or see me after church. If there's a particular book that you didn't get, that struck your interest. One is Bruco, about a 19-year-old kid who went down to South America because God called him. Nobody wanted to send him. 
No mission agency would send him, so he just went. It's a phenomenal story. Bruco, written by a guy named Bruce Olson. Another one is Against All Hope by Armando Valadares, who spent 20-some years in Castro's prisons down in Cuba. Another is Through Gates of Splendor. Another is With Eternity in Their Hearts. I'm a missions major, or minor, I should say. And um, so I love, I've always loved missions. The Lives of Men to Read, The Life of Luther, The Life of Knox, The Life of Chrysostom, The Life of Stonewall Jackson, The Life of Francis Marion. And this is just a taste. If you come to my house, come and ask to look at my library so I can show you all these awesome books and the men I've read about over the years. The Journal of John Wesley. The life of John Huss, the life of Nicholas von Amsdorf, the life of John Cook, who was the prosecutor at King Charles I's trial. And I could go on and on and on. There's countless books. And what I've learned is that none of these people had a rose-petaled life. None. A lot of times we think, oh, he's famous because he had a rose-petaled life. No. There isn't anyone on the planet who's ever had a rose-petaled life. All have endured pain, hardship, suffering, adversity. All. Betrayal, malignment, all. All of these men all had people attack them, both personally and publicly. They all suffered betrayal, hardship, loss of loved ones. And yet their story is an inspiration to to me and has contributed to my outlook on life. And that's important. Often young people, you can get so consumed, because you're more that way when you're young, you think the whole world revolves around you. And so you can get so caught up with the situation that you find yourself in, and what do some young people do? They actually commit suicide. They kill themselves because they think the whole world is watching them and seeing what's happening to them. This time in reading about others who've gone before you helps you see life is bigger than this moment. Be faithful and true to him. Move on with your life. God will use you in the earth. Be true to him. In chapter 7, verse 1, and don't get fearful. I'm not going through chapter 7 today. Okay? In chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Then the high priest said, Are these things so? Maybe I will preach to it. Because this, this guy just drives me crazy. I've seen this so often in the courts where they put on the show. Are these things so? Okay, it's a kangaroo court. We all, everybody here knows it's a kangaroo court. We know what the end result's going to be, but you're going to sit up there and act like your pompous self and say, are these things so? You know, like there's any honesty or truth or decency going on in the midst of this, right? It's just wicked. 
But that question sets us up for Stephen's defense in our next sermon. Let's stand up and we'll close in a word of prayer.